Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first. What's well, this? Can we acknowledge that we actually took a walk today? <laughs> you know, I think we need to act like we've been here before, right? Let's act like know, that is more the rule than the exception. Yeah, I wasn't going to acknowledge that at all, but thanks, thanks for outing us well, in that I'm way. I'm just mindful that for the past, what, month or more... We started right. this podcast by saying, oh, yeah, we're we lying. Have, if we're going to go there, then let's go there because, I mean, oh, wait. gentle listeners, you know I had to let's re- move on. <laughs> Yolanda showed up and I'm like, Pause. let's take a walk. And he's like, I mean, eh, diversion, change the subject, talky, talky, talky. And I was like, no, no, for real. I did try to nice. change the subject, didn't <laughs> let's I? Let's take a walk. And he's like, why? And I was like, because we are old and we need to move. So, yes, we did. We did. So good. Glad. Are you glad you got that out there? Yes, I <laughs> so feel <good>. better <laughs> and worse at yeah, the same, same time. Right. Well, that's just life. you're welcome. Yes, right. Right. Uh, so, what is astonishing you, other than our friendship? Sure. Right? Yes. Like, why are we friends again? <laughs> that's right. You are a lucky, lucky, <laughs> hashtag blessed kind of man. Yep. So tomorrow we are holding our second congregational prayer summit, and uh, it is a time for us to gather as a church to seek God for what God wants us to do in the upcoming year. Uh, We are acknowledging that in this season, uh, we don't have any good ideas. And the good ideas that we have are not what we need or want. We need God ideas. And that is a huge culture shift for us um, because like so many congregations, we've operated with the idea that, okay, we just get the the quote-unquote best, smartest people in the room and say, okay, does anybody have any ideas about what we ought to do? Um, and the person with the strongest, loudest, most convincing voice usually wins the day, and we go with that. And that is often, well, let's just do what we did the previous year. And so nothing changes. And really believing in all sincerity that those people in the room and the consensus, that that is how we're getting God ideas, right? Like it's not like people are trying to – bypass God. Correct. It's just that we can't conceive of any other way Correct. to find out what God wants from us than to gather around a table and see what everybody's best idea what is. And yes. then think like, okay, well, whoever's yes. idea is agreed to be the best, like that person is clearly speaking for God. And in all honesty, I thought that was my role as a pastor. Same. To gather same, people same. and say, okay, what do y'all want to do? What do y'all think? And And to kind of moderate the conversation until we could come to a consensus. Right, because the sort of unexamined assumption is God did all that Bible stuff, but now now it's up to us. It's up to us yeah. and we're and we know who God is and we know what God's values are, so we're going to like we're going to do a good job for you, God. Yeah. But like this is our assignment and we're going to do our best and then you give us a grade and let us know how well we did. Yeah, and and the deep like fundamental repentance that I had to do as a pastor Coming back to the reality, the truth, that the church is a spiritual institution. Yep. Yep. It's not run like a corporation. It is a spiritual institution. Therefore, we must seek and hear from God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're gathering on a Saturday tomorrow uh, as a congregation to say, God, what what do you want us to do? And we'll gather uh, in a room for worship, and then we'll break out um, four or five people in a group around tables. And we'll pray for the various uh, areas of the ministry. We'll pray for uh, the neighborhood. 
and there'll be index cards on the table. And when people hear something from God or think they hear something from God, um, and we encourage people, you know, just, just to write it down. Don't evaluate it. If you have any inkling that it's the Spirit speaking to you, write it. Because after the prayer summit, there'll be another level of discernment where people go through those cards to uh, discern what's, um, what's an opinion, what's someone expressing a, an opinion, and what is possibly the Spirit mm -hmm. speaking. And so um, to prepare for that event... Um, I have, in my own prayer life, gone back to um, a, a, a daily prayer book, that traditional um, morning, evening mm -hmm. prayer liturgy. Mm -hmm. And when I first started out in ministry, that was my everyday practice. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a great way to learn to pray. It was a great way of connecting with a tradition that goes all the way back to the early church. Mm -hmm. um, it was um, also a way for me to stay disciplined in my mm -hmm. prayer life and to um, to to begin to, to learn the language of prayer, not just the habit of prayer, right? Um, mm -hmm. And um, and then later on in my ministry, I got involved in the charismatic movement, and so I left that, and it was you know all about tongues and that sort of thing. And then after that, it became um, just a devotional time, reading through mm -hmm. the scripture. Like, I'm just going to have my morning devotion. It's all about reading through the text, some prayer, but it's mainly about reading through, mm -hmm. you know, Genesis to Revelation. And so recently I've gone back to this daily prayer ritual, especially the, the morning prayer. Um, and, and there are parts of the liturgy that are repetitive. And I have forgotten how beautiful, how powerful, mm -hmm. how comforting, how encouraging um, those words are, even though I'm, I'm reading, I'm praying these words that I'm reading. Um, and um, I, I'm thinking about a way, I've also been watching um, um, uh, documentaries and podcasts on YouTube about uh, the monastic life, both in the Orthodox mm -hmm. and the Roman Catholic tradition. Um, and their their practice of the daily prayer office, and I'm I'm seeking now to find a way to bring others in the congregation into that mm -hmm. because it, it it has renewed something for me that I needed to recover. Yeah, I think it's so interesting um, how deceptively powerful prayer is. I think maybe especially for. Western Christians, American Christians, where so so much of our culture is about doing, like just just do it, and you know, maximize your time, and 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 because prayer is essentially, I think, passive, right? I mean, ultimately, I think that people who are wisest and most mature in prayer understand that that is a moment of relinquishment a moment of surrender like the, the idea of prayer being fundamentally about listening and less about talking that's so vulnerable uh, just a space of making yourself available to God and really knowing that your experience may or may not be remarkable to you or or, or perceived as fruitful to you but you know just but you know that 
regardless of my feelings or my awareness, to center my life on the Lord to, you know, as Pete Scazzaro says, to make the practice of my faith be founded, founded on being um, in Christ rather than doing for Christ, right? Be before you do. Like that is just so difficult for us. It is like hidden in plain sight because we just feel like, all right, but I love God, so I'm going to do something for God. Um, and we have such contempt um, for for things that aren't visible and big and powerful. And so I think we, you know, sometimes when we have a season where we're experiencing a lot of brokenness or we're experiencing a lot of need or experiencing being overwhelmed, you know, then prayer can become very important to us because, um, you know, it's meeting a need. <laughs> um, and then sometimes we can turn prayer into a work, right? So I'm going to, you know, really, you know, just like the people who are giving seminars, you know, for $3,000, I'll teach you how to pray in order to change reality. So prayer becomes itself becomes an action, but to say like, no, it is, it is so much more. It, it, it is a formation practice because it changes who we are to constantly be saying more important than me is God. And to, offer my time and my awareness regularly is the embodiment of this commitment that I think we sincerely make, which is God, my life is yours. But if, if my life belongs to God, but my time doesn't, then I'm not saying that's not sincere. I mean, and I'm naming my own struggle here. (laughs) I mean, there's just times where you creep back into you're the center of your own life instead of Christ being at the center of your life. And, you know, there frankly been seasons in my life where I haven't wanted Christ in the center of my life. I've wanted to be at the center of my life doing things for Jesus. And I think you just get older and more aware of reality and realize, no, no, (laughs) I very much want Christ at the center of my life. But I still have this habit of, I mean, there's just deep resistance. And I think we look for productivity and that prayer time can be the first thing to go absolutely, because it's not productive and um, it can be the first thing to go because it doesn't always feel good or we can really insidiously turn prayer into a work as opposed to a relationship. And when you do have a daily habit of prayer or, or not, if you have any habit, any practice of prayer, over time, you can begin to see how small your own prayer mm-hmm. language is. Right. And so when you use something like um, a book of common prayer, number one, it just expands your language. Two, you learn from mothers and fathers in the faith who have gone before us because they have something to teach us. Mm-hmm. Well, and I also think it's just so helpful um, a discipline like that is so helpful because it reminds you that you're part of the communion of saints, mm-hmm. right? So that you're not in this alone. And sometimes it really is easy to feel like it's all on you. It's all up to you and that you are the mediator of your own relationship with God instead of, you know, having a practice uh, that reminds you like, no, the center of my life is what Jesus has, has done and is doing and what will 
what will be, none of which, I mean, all of which is a mystery and none of which is a mystery to us. And sort of being recentered and like, no, no, I know the end of the story. And that changes the way I live here and now, the decisions I make, and frankly, just my my peace. So, um, yeah. yeah, one of the habits of daily prayer, one of the parts of daily prayer is to read the Psalms. And so this week, as I've read the Psalms, it's interesting that um, almost every one that I've read this week has featured the, the reign, the rule, the mm-hmm. throne of God, and then immediately says something about God's justice, God's righteousness, God's compassion. Mm-hmm. And in, um, you know, a time like the one we're living in, when mm-hmm. there's so much tension and violence, it has been... Um, encouraging and comforting to be reminded uh, in these psalms, oh yes, God still sits on the throne and God's throne is not about war and violence and, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) all of those things, but compassion and justice and righteousness. I think that, you know, we, we, or I mean, I think you and I, I can speak for you and I, but I think we're not unique in that you sort of get started and you think like, I want to make a life for myself and Jesus is going to help me. I mean, yes. like you, we can make fun of Joel Osteen for writing your best life now, but the reality is we might not say it so boldly, but same, right? Like, the reason and, it works is because it's part of the thinking of our society. But, and also it's not a crappy thing to want, right? Like there's nothing tawdry or unsophisticated about wanting your life to matter, right? Like wanting your life to be what God created it to be, right? So which is good. With, there's nothing wrong with that. And so and feeling like, boy, there's a disconnect between the promises I hear from the pulpit and the promises I read in scripture and my actual experience of my life, like what's up with that? You know, so that idea of saying, oh, I really want to have a certain kind of life and God, will you help me have that life? Um, but I think you get deeper in and you realize, no, no, no. I, what I want to do is not have Jesus help me build my life. What I want to do is have Jesus be the way that I come into the life that, that Jesus already has for me, the realm that Jesus has already instituted. And that's just a very different, that's a, that's an entirely different orientation, even though many of the things that you are quote going after are the same, right? But it's just to say like, it's not about me achieving this. It's about me um, coming into what Jesus has already achieved, right? Like that the kingdom of God is in my midst. And so how do I perceive it and enter in? Um, not to what I'm doing for Jesus, but to what Jesus has done for me and really accept that, um, not just for me, but to come come and be a part of what Jesus has done for the cosmos and, and to really accept that what that looks like on earth might be very different than what I imagined as the good life, um, that I wanted for myself. So, um, but I, I think, um, it just is really important. I mean, I, we were talking about Gideon lately and the image that's been really helpful for me lately as I continue to struggle with this is, you know, when Gideon got his call, he needed to both tear down idols in his own yard and make an altar. And so for me, having that daily practice, which I 
just want to freely confess I'm terrible at, right? Like I get in a rhythm and I'm doing well and then I fall out and then I give up. Like it's just ugly. It is ugly. It is ugly. It is ugly. It is ugly. But I, you know, this is the thing, like from the head to the heart, right? Like I know it all day long in my head and I just really have a hard time mastering my flesh. But you know, for me, the image that helps is like every day I got to tear down those altar, the, tear down those idols and build my altar. That's good. And that is really helpful as to the, sort of the why of it and just reorient myself to not what is not what I perceive is happening in the world, but what Jesus has shown me is happening in time and eternity and in, in, in my in my own backyard. Yeah, so. Wow. so what is astonishing you? Well. So it's funny, it's not unrelated to all of this. There's been um, an ongoing situation that we have been navigating at the Grove, which has just been really um, challenging. Um, and I, without going into all of the details, I mean, it's actually a very practical um, problem that we've been trying to solve that has been very stressful, that has involved, you know, just interacting with other institutions um and really you know a a key part of our ministry has been um you know we we have been navigating the reality that we might just we might not be able to do it anymore and so it has been you know it's just been consuming uh, me and other leaders in the congregation and other members of the congregation since since the beginning of the summer and um, the stakes are really high and you know we've been sort of um really sent you know (laughs) really centered on okay this is what we how we've been serving the lord and the lord has been really faithful in this way and it's been very fruitful and um it's been a, a long standing part of the ministry um and and then when sort of this problem cropped up, you know, it, it was scary from the beginning, but you sort of take a deep breath and realize like, okay, God has provided for us in the past and God will provide for us in the present and in the future. And if this is God's will for it to continue, then God will make a way. And if if there's no way, then we will just have to accept that this season is finished. And that doesn't mean we're finished, but also it's hard to conceive of how we are going to continue um, if we don't have the opportunity to, to, you know, do ministry in this way. And so, and several times along the way, um, we've been sort of walking down a, a path towards a resolution and, and really uh, at least one time in particular, like just thought it was resolved and like had this experience of just like literally feeling like a spiritual, like six ton weight, just like lifted off of my shoulders and just like, you know, like happy, hysterically crying, like, oh, I'm so grateful, blah, blah, blah. And then later on, like, nope, ha ha, fooled you. <laughs> it's back. That did not work. So we've just been um, walking this out for a, a really long time. And I'd say um, two weeks ago, I was in a meeting and um, it was just one of those really scary, important meetings. And you just like, oh my gosh, like this this, there really might not be a way like this, like this just might be done and we have to face that. And, and it was really overwhelming and discouraging. Um, and so backtrack now, 10 years ago, um, when, you know, the Grove, um, 
has has changed a lot since um, since I've been here. And and you and I met because our churches that we were serving both signed up to be part of something that the Presbytery called the Transformation Project, which is like four churches who know like, hey, we know we need to change. We know we need to change. We just don't really know how. And so that's where we met. And, you know, when you talk about just recently, like coming to this awareness of like the church is a spiritual institution and it's kind of embarrassing to be like, well, we didn't really get that before. But I mean, same like that. And it was really that process of that transformation process where we really had to face that. And, and, um, and it was very life giving and fruitful and also very, very, very hard. (laughs) And we've talked before on this podcast about how, like for the first year you knew me, like I was just mad. (laughs) I was just angry. Um, because it was so threatening just the way, just the whole paradigm shift was so threatening to me. But you gave some incredibly good rants. I mean, I I'm, mean, I'm, the rants I'm, were oh, <laughs> top notch. Wonderful. If if complaining could make it so, man. Um, anyway, at the at the Grove, um, we sort of went through this process, and it was it was really challenging and really sacrificial. And and at one point, um, two thirds of our congregation had left some new people were coming, but we were just out of money. And originally the, um, the project as it was conceived by the presbytery, which is sort of the next adjudicatory level above local churches had been, when you get to a certain point in this project, if you stay with it, the presbytery will come alongside you and provide coaching and provide resources, including financial resources. And so this congregation got to that point. And then for lots of reasons, the presbytery just said, yeah, we can't, sorry, like you're on your own. And so we were, you know, down to a third of a congregation that was not big to start with. Um, when people left, uh, many of them, it's worth noting, made um, what I think was a, just a really beautiful faithful decision to say, hey, we had made a pledge for this year. So we're going to honor this pledge for this year. But after this year, we're not going to do that because we're not part of your congregation anymore, which is fair enough or this congregation anymore. Um, so we just knew money was tight before and it was just a mess. And so, you know, it was very clear that we, we had this work in front of us that we did not know how to do. There was no institution that was going to support us in doing it. Like no coach to teach us, nobody to fill in the gap. We were like missing people we were trying to become transform and become a multi-ethnic congregation and we were a a congregation at that point which was only older white people there were not very many families with children in the church when i came and by not many i mean three four counting mine and then two of them left and so there was one family with teenagers left and then my own children that was it so it just was like you read the tea leaves, like this is not going to work, right? We, this is going to fail. And um, because transforming a church is almost impossible in the best of situations. And we were not in the best of situations. And um, transforming to become a multi-ethnic church, everyone will tell you is impossible. I mean, it just, it was, it just was very grim And, um, one of the things that happened in that moment when we were really trying to discern as a congregation, like, well, what, what do we do? Because all these people had left, 
There was no way that we could financially keep the lights on. But some people were coming and joining the church, not many, and certainly not people with a lot of economic resources. But it put us in this really weird place where any rational person would have said, friends, you need to close this church down. But also people people were coming. And so it felt weird to close a church that some people, again, I want to be clear, not very many people, <laughs> but some people were joining. I don't know. It just was a mess. And as a leader, um, it really didn't know what it meant to be faithful in that moment because I was talking to someone else who I respected and they were saying like, Kate, it's not faithful as a pastor to tee the congregation to run at full speed towards a brick wall, mm. which was what it definitely felt like. So, and I, I heard him say that and I was like, that's true. Like that's, that's not a good shepherd. Like I can't do that. And I was really sitting with that and somehow and somehow somehow I mean the Holy Spirit now in hindsight just really came to a moment of clarity um, of like you know what you because I was trying to decide like well do we need to close the church or when's the right moment or when do we get to a point that we're like all right we have to hang it up like there's no chance and it just came to this moment of clarity that you know what you keep going until you can't right like that's how you know when to stop is when you can't take the next step. But until that, you know, don't, but, but you need to keep taking next steps until there's no next step to take. Because the reality is it's not up to you whether, you know, what this looks like. Um, it's up to you to be faithful. So you, you be faithful and take the next step and don't really get overly um, distracted on, what you predict is going to happen. Um, and, and so that when the church dies, you will know we did everything we could to be faithful. So that was kind of my moment of clarity is when do I close the church? I close the church when I can't keep it open. (laughs) And so, um, so we just started walking out in that season, like fully expecting that we would close the church, but there was no longer our responsibility to decide when. So then, of course, here we are 10 years later. And for a long time, we were just walking, knowing like, we're going to have to close the church in three months. We're going to have to church a month later. We'll close it in three months. You know, and we had to make big changes. Like I went part time, like we just had to let go an admin person. Like we made very large financial decisions in order to try to right size the budget, blah, blah, blah. But um. Obviously, we're sitting here talking, the church never closed. And I have always just been so grateful for the wisdom of that moment, because if I had just been overly focused on what was going to be effective, or if it was worth it, I would have quit. Um, And I wouldn't have seen it as quitting. I would have seen it as like, there's no point to this. So we should stop and go do something that there is a point to. Um, And so you know, I have learned since then that it is not my job to be effective. It is my job to be faithful and to just recognize that in any moment, it's also not my job. I mean, obviously you want to be a good steward and you want to be strategic and you don't want to be foolish, but it's also not my job to game plan out. I don't need a 10 year 
10 step plan. I need to know like, what's the next right thing to do. Um, and so when we're navigating that this, this summer and fall with this other situation now, which is not as significant as closing the church at all, but is still very significant. I just was like, we just need to keep walking out a path to try to solve this problem. Even though, you know, we got to the point two weeks ago where I'm like, okay, here's the next thing we're going to do. But I really expect it is not going to work and it is going to be a waste of time and resources. But this principle of like, your job is to do everything that you can do and not to decide that something would be a waste of time. And so we, we took this last step um, and then this week, just really out of, I mean, out of the realm of God, we were in this meeting and someone at the table said, I'm sure you've thought about X as a solution. And we were like, we absolutely have not. Um, and so now it like, it looks like that will be a solution. And I just, I don't know, like maybe this is just too abstract for anyone else to find helpful, but like, I just was so grateful in that moment that I had learned that lesson because I think a lot of times we just, again, we are, we function, we don't always intentionally function as a spiritual institution. And so to just recognize that there is power and righteousness in being faithful. And sometimes we're like, yeah, 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 as long as it works. And it's really important that we don't let our expectations of it, quote, working, <laughs> curtail our faithfulness, or we don't let ourselves off the hook for doing what we can do, because we feel like we know in our head what is going to be effective. And I had um, run across this week a quote from... Um, Dorothy Day that I, I thought was just really about that. She said, don't worry about being effective, just concentrate on being faithful to the truth. And that I just think is really important if you're doing, especially if you're doing transformational work or you're trying to do just the work of righteousness, it, it can really like just lots of compromises get made when you are more, fo more focused on being effective than on being faithful to the truth. Um, and then certainly in trying to transform a community, if, if you are only willing to be faithful in as much as it is perceived to be effective in your eyes, then you are limiting the ways that the Holy Spirit can show up. And it's interesting in this particular situation that it's not like, you know, this, this solution it's not like it is on the surface of it, a big supernatural solution, right? It was a very natural and obvious solution that we just hadn't, we just hadn't seen it. But had we just said, nope, we're not going to waste the time and money and take this last step, we never would have seen it. And um, I just think again and again and again, my experience of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is that God often shows up powerfully right at the point where we really recognize that we have run out of natural options. 
Um, And I don't mean by that you should walk off a cliff and expect God to catch you, right? Don't put the Lord your God to the test. But also, there are worse things to do than waste your precious time, right? To just say, like, it is not a waste of time ever to take the next faithful step. And I just feel like I learned that again and again and again, like having the one more conversation with the person that you're in a difficult relationship with, right? Like something isn't working out and you think like, well, it's just not going to work out. There's no point in sitting down and having a clarifying conversation. Like I think it's just always important to take the next faithful step. And we often walk away, I think, a lot before you know, God really is going to give us the sweetest fruit. So that has just been astonishing me. Just Yeah, and I think you're right that just filters down or beyond, you know, life as a pastor or any kind of leader of an institution. It is for everyone, especially in a time in which so many people are living on the edge, not sure if they're going to make it another day, not sure what... Um, next year, even this year or next month holds, not sure if they can endure, make it, um, thoughts of giving up and quitting, uh, both in the small and the grand sense of, of that, um, to here, just take the next step is, is freeing and encouraging. Right. And the scripture that comes to my mind is we walk by faith and, and not, not by, by sight. sight. Right. So, and that's exactly what yeah. it was. Like, and I just can't tell you looking back, like the email I wrote thinking, this person's going to say, no, I can't help you. And I'm like, I know this person's going to say, no, I can't help you, but I'm going to write the email. And I, like everyone else in the world, I don't like, I don't, you experience it as rejection, right? Like you feel stupid. Like you feel pathetic asking for help. But just to say like, you know what? It's not my job to like they get to own their yes or no and I don't even have any hardness in my heart towards someone saying like no I can't help you or I think you know I just like it's my job to do the thing that I can do and then let go and then of course like I wrote this email thinking this person isn't going to help me and then they actually immediately were like yes I will help and then I thought okay well they're going to help but they're not going to be able to help and then lo and behold they are and then I thought like well other people involved are not going to accept their help. And, you know, and so it's still, it still might not work, right? Like it's still, but I just, um, again, I think you just sort of get in the mindset of the culture, which is like, the worst thing I can do is waste my time. The worst thing I can do is look stupid. The worst thing I can do is look vulnerable. The worst thing I can do is fail. And that's all true in American culture. It is not true in the kingdom of God. Like Jesus looked like he wasted his time. Jesus looked pathetic. He looked weak. He looked like a failure. He looked like he didn't matter much. And that was not, none of that was true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I can't help but think of that story about um, the feeding of the 5,000 when the disciples say to Jesus, hey, we've got all these people. It's getting late. Send them home so they can get something to eat. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. And the disciples are like, what are you talking about? We have five loaves of bread and two fish. So they're they're thinking big picture. How are we going to solve this problem? Mm-hmm. And Jesus gives them some very simple steps to follow. First, he says, well, give what you have to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then um, the, the, they have the people sit on the grass. And Jesus simply tells them, 
pass these things out to the people, Mm -hmm. like very doable steps. And we often get stuck and discouraged and want to quit because we're trying to solve the big problem and we miss the the very doable step that God is putting right in our laps. Well, and I also just think like we are looking at what we have and thinking like, well, there's no point in even trying because we can't do this. And I think it gets back to this idea of like really taking seriously like, hey, we are saying, I mean, if you're part of a church, you are part of a spiritual institution. Mm -hmm. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, what you're saying is the most most powerful and truth-filled thing is the spiritual reality of of Christ, which is very incarnational. It's very practical, but also it is ultimately spiritual. And and I think we just, you know, if you are a lot of times um, Christians, especially Western Christians, we just think, okay, well, what we see is what God has to work with. And so if we don't see a way, there isn't a way. And a lot of times we think like, no, what we see is actually really okay if it could just be tweaked in a certain way then we'd all be well like then the kingdom of god would be here and and not taking seriously the really offensive and scary revelation of jesus which is like all this stuff is passing away not just the bad stuff but the good stuff as well and it's not that we need to fear what's coming next we don't need to fear it it is good it is restoration it is um, the ox chewing straw and the infant sticking ha- a hand in the serpent's nest, you know, they shall neither harm nor destroy on all God's holy mountain. Like what's coming is is good and we don't need to fear it. And it's not destruction, but it's also not familiar. And yeah. I think that just sort of being willing to let go of what is familiar, not just what is familiar that is bad, but also what is familiar that is good, which is why, you know, ultimately, if this particular problem doesn't get resolved, I mean, if this way that ministry has been happening so fruitfully here for so many years, if it has to be a new thing, you know, my my deepest, most mature faith says, okay, then you take a neat breath, and you thank God for what has been good in this season, and you recognize that God's not abandoning you, and you walk expectantly into what's next, right? Like you don't pitch a temper tantrum like a two-year-old who got their lollipop taken away. You recognize God is the source of all the goodness that we have experienced, and God is not changing. So we can we can walk into the future expecting God to be good. And really seeking, you know, seeking provision, seeking wisdom, but not despairing um, at, at even a good thing that comes to an end. So anyway, but but I really hope this is the solution. <laughs> it's okay. You can hope that. I can hope that okay. because ultimately, ultimately, even as much as I hope that, I I also just know if it's not what is next for us. It's okay. It's okay that God will still be good. Good to this community, good to all the people involved, good to me. And and so you can walk into what's next. And and I, you know, have been have been through scarier transitions, which is a gift that I really thank God for all the time. So what are you thinking about? Well, Tuesday was election day here in the United States and um I 
I try to get into early voting, but I just really have a thing for voting on election day. And so on Tuesday, I went to my local polling place and there was an unusually long line. Normally, I show up to vote and I, the whole process is usually five minutes or less. I mean, there's no line. I walk right in, do all the things, and I'm back in my car. And Tuesday, there was a line out of the building stretching into the parking lot, which meant uh, a lot of standing time and a lot of time reading political signs that were posted all around. And one particular sign, um, just <laughs> as you got uh, to the building, caught my eye because I've never seen it before, and it was not uh, promoting a candidate. Uh, the sign simply read, vote the Bible. Vote the Bible. And um, my first thought was, I wonder what they mean by that. Because if I'm being my most generous self, then that could mean as you go in to vote, place yourself in a mindset of great humility because this is spiritual. All things are spiritual. The scripture says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so there is a kind of soberness about it. It's like, oh, if that's what they mean, okay. If it means um, as you go in to vote, Take everything you know about the scripture mm -hmm. and let that guide you for the public good. Take what you know about God's heart for everyone in this society and vote that. Okay, I can, I can, I can do that. My concern is that those words can be a kind of dog whistle, a way of saying, hey, there is, well, there, they are, <laughs> there are good guys and bad guys, and the good think this and they all belong to this party and the bad people think that and they all belong to the other party therefore you must vote for this party exclusively and to do anything else is evil i'm concerned that it is also a way to play into the dualism of the western mindset that can divide morality into personal like moral issues, like sexual issues, and ignore 
the clear moral teachings of the Bible about how we treat the poor and the oppressed and the least among us. And it could be a way of saying, don't, don't think about the poor. <laughs> think about all those immoral people that we are, that we are against. Um, so I've just been, I've been thinking about that and also how, how a non-Christian would read that sign, right? So as a person who's been to seminary, who has a certain amount of training, I can, you know, think through the various nuances, various ways to read that sign. But I was thinking, what, what if I'm 30 years old, 25 years old, and I'm not a Christian? I might read that as an attempt at a kind of oppressive theocracy um, that the church is about its own power and influence, that the church really does not care about the poor, the oppressed. Um, I can, it can reinforce some negative, uh, I want to say stereotypes, but sometimes it's very real. Some, but I'll say negative stereotypes about the church. Um, well, I mean, I just think right now there are a lot of very loud voices who are claiming to be the only um, authentic and orthodox interpreters of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those folks, in my opinion, are doing a really poor job of interpreting Scripture. Because so, the Bible is sacred, but... People's interpretations, interpretations are, are not. not. And I and I think, you know, from the very beginning, you've got Paul saying, like, if anybody, even and up to including an angel of the Lord, comes and preaches you a version of this gospel that isn't Christ, don't listen. Like, don't even listen to us if we come back and preach you a version of the gospel that isn't Christ. And so, you know, this idea, it's nothing new. From the very beginning, there have been super apostles, Paul calls them, like very powerful, charismatic, persuasive people who show up and say, oh, no, 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 the gospel isn't really about, you know, you don't know anything about the gospel from seeing a humiliated, crucified, weak Jesus resurrected by God. Don't pay any attention to that. Here, Here's what it means. Like, follow, you know, what and whatever then the interpretation was, like, you need to be circumcised or you need to keep kosher or you need to reject these or that people. Like, my um one of my seminary professors who I appreciated a lot um talked about you know the passage in Romans 1 where you know Paul clearly says the gospel is power is the power of God and power is neutral so electricity can be used to you know light the lights in an OR and do life-saving surgery or an electricity can be used to power an electric chair to kill someone so power in itself is neutral and the gospel is very powerful and so it can be used um, in ways that are um, blasphemous and you know again you read in Revelation about the Antichrist, it's anybody who takes the power and words of Christ um, to to work against the coming of the kingdom of God. And also, that's not new. You have this um, commandment, one of the Ten Commandments. What is it, the second one? Like, don't take the Lord's name in vain, which is not about hitting your thumb with a hammer and saying, oh, God, or God damn it. That's not what it is. It's about taking the sacred name of God and using it to justify 
things that are counter to the will of God. So to justify oppression or to justify injustice or to condone violence, like these things are definitively revealed by the cross to be destructive and opposed to the reign of God. So, I mean, to, and for us as teachers of the Bible, it is this very heavy responsibility to be people who come alongside other people and say, this is what we think um, the gospel means. And this is what we think these words of scripture means. And here's how to understand these stories. And, you know, Paul says, if we lead people astray, this is, you know, there's judgment against us for that. And I think that that is happening. And obviously, you know, I certainly do not intend and do not believe that that is what I am doing. But, you know, you try to all the time say to people like, look, don't, don't believe what I tell you about the Bible. (laughs) Like you need to be in a direct, unmediated relationship with Jesus or mediated by the Holy Spirit. So you, you can't just line up behind whoever you want to line up on and then say, I'm now absolved of responsibility. I'm going to do whatever so-and-so says. Like every single fool down here is flawed and limited. And um, so we just have to work out our faith with fear and trembling. So obviously the people who make that sign have a particular understanding of what it means to vote the Bible. But you and I know, and I mean, really anybody who thinks about it for two seconds know that um, the Bible is not neutral, but people can use the words of scripture to justify any agenda or any platform up to and including genocide, chattel slavery, you know, uh, crusades, like all yeah. of these things were were justified with scripture. And, you know, the Presbyterian pastors were some of the biggest apologists for slavery um, when that started to be a national issue, people needed um, a needed a biblical rationale as to why these abolitionists who were talking about the book of Exodus being applicable here and now in this country and Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian pastors stepped into that gap and started talking all kinds of nonsense about the curse of Ham and misinterpreting passages of Paul. So, uh, you know, you just, I obviously find scripture or maybe not obvious, I find scripture to be incredibly um, revelatory. And I feel like studying, you know, I experience scripture to be holy in the highest form of truth existing in the world, except for Jesus. And it is scripture who helps me, that helps me perceive Jesus, but scripture is not Jesus. So, I mean, and ultimately, I think for us, we have to really recognize that you know, the Bible is the Bible and Jesus is the word of God. And so we even have a, an unapologetic level of removal from we're not loyal to words on a page, even though we believe those words on the page are divinely inspired and are holy and true. Ultimately, we pledge our allegiance not to the Bible, but to to Jesus. And so. Well, and. The apostles of the early church read the Old Testament through the lens of their experience of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus became the lens through which they even interpreted the words on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm, it's an interesting thing, and who knows? I mean, I have suspicions about what the people 
might have meant putting up that sign. Um, but yeah, I mean, I absolutely voted uh, my biblical convictions without feeling really incredibly, I don't feel incredible allegiance to either political party. And I'm well aware of the just limitations and flaws of the f- candidates and institutions I support. Um, but I, you know, I appreciate what what I've heard someone like Andy Stanley say is like, look, all Christians need to vote for the best interest of their neighbors. Yeah, You vote for the best interest of your neighbors. You vote for the best interest of your enemies. Which is different from the question that's asked of us every four years. Are you better off? Not right. are your That's, neighbors right. and or so, the least of these. And and to say people of faith and integrity can have really different opinions about what you know about what is what will bring the best for our neighbors. And you know, also when we think about who our neighbors are, we have to let Jesus, the word of God teach us. So who is my neighbor? Jesus is very clear that it's not the person who lives next door to you, that it is the person who, according to the um, parable of the Good Samaritan, it is the person who is um, crushed um, and a victim and um, the person who often uh, is the model for what righteousness looks like is someone who is a foreigner and uh, someone who might is not a member of your faith. And so anyway, I, I think... Um, I mean, it's just kind of, I think it's kind of silly, a silly sign um, more than anything else, because anyone who takes scripture seriously is going to say, I am. <laughs> and, you know, so anyway. So what are you thinking about? Well, just really quickly, I, I was talking to a friend of mine about this and <laughs> a friend who actually listens to the podcast. And she said, oh, I, I smell a two pastors take a walk rant. And I was like, oh. Oh, really? It's coming. Um, so It's been a while. Well, I mean, she took the wind out of my cells a little bit, but I do just want to acknowledge. Um, so I, I, we talked on the podcast last week about um, the real tragedy of the um, arson attack on uh, a congregation in our community, another Presbyterian church, a historically black congregation called Matthews Merkland Presbyterian. And um, I had... Um, reached out to the pastor to ask if it would be helpful in any way if I tried to write an editorial about what happened and um, and you know just wanting to really make sure that it's not my story to tell. So if there was if that didn't seem like it would be helpful in any way, if it felt like that would make them more vulnerable, or if goodness knows, um, Reverend Albert Moses. Uh, is more than capable of <laughs> writing anything that needs to be written. Um, but, you know, he had said that that did seem good. And so I reached out and um, they had agreed to publish something. And um, it was really interesting then. I, I don't always know when things are coming out. So when I became aware of it being out on Sunday morning, I did the thing that you're, that you really should never, ever do, which is I was just looking at the you comments. You read the comments. I didn't do the comments. Because I really, and I think I've said this and before. And you know you do that every time. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. And honestly, like mostly they just amuse me. Yeah. Like I'm. And I, that is true. That is true. I yeah. noticed that. Yeah. I just think like people get really, I just, and it's really funny to me because I'm actually a very sensitive person and I really hate 
being rejected. So it's just really strange to me. Like it's almost like pressing a bruise. I'm like, does this, this really doesn't bother me. Like this is very strange. Um, I really am genuinely amused. It's particularly like you're doing your own form of immersion therapy. I guess, right? <laughs> like, especially when people, you know, people often have things to say about being woman or being pastored. And I'm just oh, like, yes. I, I just, I'm surprised that I, anyway. But so the, but these particular comments were just interesting to me and there weren't a ton um, but the, but the overwhelming comment was essentially, it's bad that this church got burned down, but you don't know it's about white supremacy and it's always about white supremacy with you. And it's always about race with you. And why do you always, you know, and I just thought it's so interesting in this article about the burning of a black church. And in this article that is about, you know, this isn't the first time someone has tried to burn this black church down. And let's set the context of like, why do people try to burn down black churches? And how, what does that have to do with sort of the larger context of who we are as a nation and these patterns? So I mean, it is an article about the burning of black churches and how that the fuel of that is white supremacy and about how we as white people need to recognize that this culture was created intentionally and it's going to have to be deconstructed intentionally. So, I mean, the article was about the burning of the black churches and it was about white supremacy. And then that the response from white people is this isn't about that. And you're making tons of assumptions. And, and I just thought it really reminded me of the response of how, Every time there is a mass shooting, the resistance to talking about gun violence, right? Because you're never allowed to talk about gun control after a mass shooting because somehow it's inappropriate um, to, you know, maybe. And I just think it's so it's so interesting that you can't talk about white supremacy when just in general, like you can't talk about white supremacy just because you perceive it as an issue in the nation, because then you're just always talking about race and you're making everything about race and you're a liberal and all the other words. But you also can't talk about white supremacy when an act of violence based on white supremacy is committed, right? Like it's yes. inappropriate to talk about and speculate about white supremacy when a black church is burned down, which then means when is it appropriate to talk about white supremacy I mean, it's literally never, right? You can't talk about when you study American history. You can't talk about it when you look at the culture now. You can't talk about systemic racism. You can't talk about or speculate if it was white supremacy that caused a black church to be burned down because apparently there's a pattern of black churches being burned down in this nation for 200 years, but there's nothing to see and it doesn't matter. And we shouldn't speculate it. And that's why the Congress shouldn't study gun violence because there's no pattern and there's no point and these things just happen. And what, you know, and I just thought it's just so interesting and and to really recognize that part of the pattern, part of, I mean, that I see, and it's funny because you read about these things in, or I do, when I when I just try to read um, people who are doing the work of racial reconciliation and people who are talking about systemic racism, and they'll just say, you know, part of the way that white supremacy works is by... Um, a, really making sure that white people know that their identity, their belonging in their own communities will be threatened if they start to question these this culture, that people will turn and say, well, you're calling me racist or you're stirring up trouble and you don't belong. And so then as a white person, you won't have a home, right? Because you won't belong to your own people, but obviously 
other groups of people are going to be understandably slow or maybe uninterested or untrustworthy in accepting you. And, and also the other place of resistance is people will always tell you that it's inappropriate to talk about it, right? That anytime you say, perhaps is there, is race, uh, um, is racism playing a factor in this? People will always say like, no, you can't prove that. And so there's never an appropriate time to talk about it. And you just see that over and over again in our culture that, you know, you're, I mean, most white people, not all, but most white people who are talking about white supremacy are talking about why we can't talk about it and why there's no appropriate place to talk about it. Like it is the thing that doesn't exist. It's like Voldemort, right? <laughs> like you can't name it because it is somehow threatening and you are you are a target if you if you even bring it up and and then the fact that it can't be talked about is proof that it doesn't exist right so it's just and sort of recognizing like oh i don't i don't actually feel attacked or offended you're just like oh this is the pattern like people can you know you've seen those memes about when I'm, these are the stages after a shooting happens right and you're just like oh yes this is exactly what happens. And, you know, and it goes around the circle until it happens again. It's just a cycle. And you go like, oh, this is also just what happens every time you try to have a conversation about white supremacy is that the immediate response is, you don't know that for sure. It's not happening here. Black on black crime. This is, you know, America's not all bad. That's, I mean, you know, just these same points because people understand, I mean, not understandable. I, I mean, I people are very threatened because it will require a huge paradigm shift. And I think a lot of people really wonder if any part of themselves, their current lives, their history will have a place in a different kind of world. Um, so, yes. Um, and again, it points to the reality that we see white supremacy and racism as a political issue and not a spiritual moral issue. And because it's right. a political issue, it's about winning. It's about defeating the other side. It's about tactics, doing whatever you need to do to make sure your point of view, your side wins. Not a spiritual moral issue where you come to a place of humility and say, okay, God, I am submitting myself to your kingdom reign, your rule, your word, so that at the same time, I'm going to tear down idols and build new altars. Yeah, and I think the reality is it's important to say, because I think your comment can be misinterpreted by a lot of people who want to say, I, who might sit, listen to you and say, I agree, it's not a skin issue, it's a sin issue, blah, blah. And I think, I don't, and that's I don't, not what I'm saying. No, I know it's yes. not what you're saying, but I think it's what people can hear. And I just think it's important to point out that one of the issues about systemic racism, and obviously, black churches are not built, burned down by systemic racism, they're burned down by people who are captivated or, or possessed by this ideology. But when we are talking about systemic racism, part of the point is the system is set up to be discriminatory and to be to show privilege against some ethnic groups and towards others, which means you don't have to have hatred in your heart for a particular racial group because the system will 
impartially do what it was designed to do, which is favor some at the expense of others, right? So I think that that's why it's really important to say you can be a person who is not racist. And if you are not interested in why we see the kinds of disparities that exist in the world and in our country and in our community, if you're not interested in understanding why the justice system, the educational system, the banking system, the housing system have produced these disparities, if you are convinced that all of these systems are fair and impartial, and you you like black people and you have a black best friend and there's no hate in your heart and it's heritage, not hate, the, the problem is you don't understand that these systems don't have to be consciously run by people who hate anybody in order to deliver these disparate outcomes. And if you're not interested in the systemic um, and the ways the systems are working, then what you're really saying without saying is, oh, I'm not surprised that white people are doing so much better and black people are doing so much work because there's a part of me that just really does think I don't hate black people. I just really think that white people are more responsible and smarter and work harder and are more law-abiding. All of these things are factually untrue. People are people. It is the systems that create these great disparities. And if you're not interested in looking at that because it's scary to you or because you know a couple people who have defied the odds. And that means you want to say like, well, Ben Carson was fine. And therefore anyone who matters will be fine too. So sorry. And now I'm on my rant. I just thought it was remarkable that even in an article, I mean, I sort of understand if I'm writing about say COVID and I'm pointing out how systemic racism is effective. I can kind of understand why people are like, Hey, this this is about COVID and COVID affects everyone. Like I can understand why that isn't immediately apparent, but I just thought it was really interesting that even in writing an article about arson against black churches, people are still saying like, no, 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 you can't talk about white supremacy. Yeah. And um, I'll just add this, that there are a number, there, there are a lot of white evangelicals and charismatics who understand what you just said. Because I've been in those spaces, especially those charismatic spaces, and they understand the language of powers and principalities. They understand the language of being in systems where you are deceived. You're not mm -hmm. intentionally seeking to do evil, but you right. are part. They understand that right. language, and but they have not connected that language, that part of their own belief system with the reality of systemic racism. Right. I mean, you think about Paul, like Paul wasn't out there trying to oppose God when he was Saul. He was working the system and doing what he thought was righteous. But why Paul is so instrumental for us is because when the Lord revealed to him what the Lord was doing, Paul immediately repented and pivoted and gave up power and gave up privilege and leveraged what he had and took on risk to say, I understand what God is doing in the world and I want to be a part of it. And and I'm content to be the the least of everyone in the kingdom. And I don't, you know, I, I accept that and I always will. And I'm not ashamed of it and I'm not bearing it and I'm not hiding it. I just want to be on the Lord's side now. And what is the Lord doing? And I want to be a part of it. And that's that's what we need to be about. And for a lot of people, it's going to mean I'm not going to be able to be as, quote, I'm not going to be able to be as successful 
in the systems that exist because I am going to be challenging them. Um, and I'm going to want to be where the Lord is, which is on the margins. Um, so yeah. you are preaching about. We don't know. <laughs> it's Friday. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, but you're having a prayer summit tomorrow. We're having so. a prayer summit and the Lord will speak and the Lord will give a word and it will. Will be good. It will be something. It will be good because the <laughs> Lord is good. good. And you are jet setting preacher. You're getting on a plane. You're preaching somewhere, somewhere else in the country. What, Connecticut? Where are you going? Yes, I, I am going to Connecticut. Um, I am part of a clergy group. That I would like everyone to know. I have invited Yolanda Hinton really, to be a part again? of so many like, times. Are we no, really I just doing, want to make it clear. I know I'm not trying like, to talk. How many you. years have we been doing this? I just want to make it like, clear to everyone that anything we have had this conversation <laughs> for many, many years. Right. So I'm part of this clergy group that. Yolanda could be a part of, but doesn't want to, which is fine. But clearly, it is not. No, fine. I just I don't want people to feel like, oh, this is something that I have access to that you don't have access to. I am part of a clergy group, and one of my friends in that group has invited me to preach at his church, which is just fun. It's just fun to do. So I'm going to go do that, and um, I'm I will miss being at the Grove because these are my people. But it's um, will be fun to be in a different kind of community as a one-off. And I, I don't, you know, I don't know why the Lord might be calling me to do that, but I trust um, that the spirit is in it. And I have said before, like, I just really like to preach. So if anybody invites me to preach anywhere, I'm going to say yes, because I just think it is such an honor and a privilege and a joy. Um, and I'm just always, always honored to say yes. So this is funny. If people say, will you preach? I'm, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. I, haven't given you yes. The I don't even yet. need to know. Like I, yes, the answer is yes. So, um, so I'm excited to do that. And our, um, we have a, um, we are so blessed to have a seminary intern this year. Um, and so she is going to preach at the Grove this Sunday. So I, we have really, um, really wonderful worship leaders. So I know that the service here is going to be really um, beautiful and powerful, and I'm gonna um, watch it online afterwards. So, mm. um, so are we good? We're good. Yeah. Um, thanks for listening this week. We, if you're still listening this week, we're we're grateful. Um, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian Church, I need you to go to their website, which is Derida Church, which is D E R I T A Church dot Faith Life Sites dot com. That's sites with two S's. Um, and you can also check out their podcast and YouTube, um, YouTube channel and their podcast, which is on the Podbean website. Look for the Dorada Church podcast and they worship at 11 o'clock here we do. in the QC. So you could join them. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at the Grove, you can go to um, our website, which is www dot the why does anybody ever say www like is there anyone in the world who doesn't know that part because anyway. they are lame because I'm lame sorry sorry just joking just joking <laughs> right. I'm gonna get on the internet and go to the website which is thegrovecharlotte.org. <laughs> you can look for the green tree and you can also check out our podcast and our YouTube channel, um, The Grove Charlotte. Um, there's lots of groves, churches in the world. So look for the one with the green tree and you can come worship at The Grove at 10 a.m. This Sunday is going to be extra, extra good. 
Um, so thank you all so much for listening. And we we will not talk to you next week. We might not talk to you next week. We like what's happening. Oh, okay. you're still I'm, in Connecticut. No, you'll, I'm just gonna whatever. You'll be on a plane we'll, Tuesday. We'll, yeah, we'll, we, you don't need to listen to us figure this out. But <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. 